it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, broadcasting live in London, England. Thank you so much for tuning into the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And then around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow me personally, we recommend that as well, at Guy P. Benson on both of those same platforms. Here in a new broadcast week, we've got a lot coming your way, including today, Carol Markowitz, later this hour on Florida and national politics and beyond. Tom Homan, former acting ICE director on the border crisis and a change in personnel. Is it actually some accountability that we saw over the weekend with the Border Patrol director ousted? He was effectively forced to fall on his sword, but does it matter? If the policies are still the same, would getting rid of one incompetent person really change very much? We'll see what Tom has to say about that. Gordon Chang will also be here reacting to President Biden's meeting today with Xi Jinping, the leader of China. And he, of course, met with the president earlier in this much ballyhooed summit in Bali, Indonesia. So Gordon Chang will be here on that. Plus, we will have lots of talk about the 2022 midterm elections that still aren't over. And not only because. We have a Georgia runoff coming up in early December, although that's absolutely true, an important Senate runoff, although it is less important than it possibly could have been under different circumstances. Because over the weekend, the Republicans suffered the blow of having Democrats officially retain control of the upper chamber thanks to a call in Nevada for Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Adam Laxalt, who had been on this show multiple times, was the Republican challenger. He was broadly seen as probably the Republican with the best opportunity, best situated to unseat a Democratic incumbent in the Senate. But very strangely, as we pointed out a few different times already since Tuesday, this election happened among an electorate that is extremely unhappy with the direction of the country. Right. Based on the Fox News exit polls, the voter analysis. By a three to one margin, the American people are dissatisfied with the direction of the country. Seventy five percent of voters last Tuesday are unhappy with the country and its direction under a Democratic president and a Democrat controlled Washington, D.C. Among the electorate that voted last Tuesday, President Biden's job approval rating. Was dismal. His disapproval rating was 57 percent, a sizable majority disapprove of the president's job approval or of the of his performance. I mean, you add those two factors up and you would imagine a red wave was going to occur. 
But that is not exactly what has happened. What we might get eventually is a red splash, if anything. And there seems to be some good, positive indications for the Republicans in the House, which I'll get to here in just a moment. But the fact that you had Blake Masters losing in Arizona, which was one path to at least getting to a possible majority, that one was closed off. Then Adam Laxall had been leading, leading, leading. I had heard from people connected to his campaign that they were still confident that the numbers that they had ran in sort of their modeling of how this would go still had him winning. But the votes that came in late, which I know is frustrating and often seems to be the case, at least in Clark County, a Democratic stronghold, they were breaking even more strongly for Cortez Masto than expected, and she overtook him. And the race was called. And so astoundingly, in this environment of deep-seated discontent among the electorate, not a single Senate incumbent anywhere in the country lost an election. Now, it's possible that Lisa Murkowski could potentially lose in Alaska, which takes forever to count. And then also they have this ranked choice thing. So that adds even more time to it. So we'll see. I think last I saw, she was down a little bit in the vote count, but I think they're a ways off from having clarity there. And on December the 6th, Raphael Warnock in Georgia could lose to Herschel Walker. Depending on what happens there, that would be the first senator to actually fall in this election. And if Herschel's able to pull it off on December 6th in Georgia, that would ultimately settle the Senate back at 50-50 exactly where we started at the beginning of this lengthy, drawn-out, brutal, extremely expensive process. I mean, well over a billion dollars was spent on Senate races this year. I'd love to know the final number. A huge amount of money was dropped and dumped all over the country in Senate races, and it would be quite something if all the money ended up bringing us just no change at all, 50-50 right where we began. One seat changing hands to the Democrats in Pennsylvania and potentially one seat changing the Republicans in Georgia, although that is very much uncertain. And if Warnock wins in early December, then the Democrats, when all is said and done, under these circumstances in this environment, will actually gain one seat in the United States Senate this cycle. Which would be a real failure. Not just a huge disappointment, a real failure. We talked about how it's an indictment in a lot of ways of the Republican Party that a lot of voters, including independents, who almost always who are deciding late, break toward the out of party or the out of power party against the in power party under these types of circumstances politically didn't happen this year. They split almost evenly and the independents actually very slightly favor the Democrats they don't like the Democrats. They don't like the president. And yet many of them could not bring themselves to vote for certain Republicans in particular. So they didn't. And that made the difference. That is why a red wave that was expected did not happen and has not happened. And I'll get to the House in just a moment. That's the Senate picture. On the gubernatorial front. It looks entirely possible that the Democrats might end up gaining two governorships when all is said and done. 
the bright spot for the Republicans is Nevada, where the margin in that race was bigger than Adam Laxalt's margin. And so the Republican challenger, Joe Lombardo, who's the sheriff in Clark County, he's the Republican, he won that race. That is the only race, Senate or governor, statewide, anywhere in the country, that an incumbent lost. The only one, which just blows my mind, again, given the environment out there. But so that's a flip red with the incumbent Democrat losing. Then you had open seats in places like Massachusetts and Maryland, where the Republican, sort of liberal, moderate Republican governors weren't running again. I think Hogan in Maryland was term limited. I think the governor of Massachusetts just didn't want to run again, Charlie Baker, if memory serves. But neither of them were running again. Both of them were popular in the state. They decided not to run or couldn't run. And the Republicans in those states, the primary electorate, decided that they were going to nominate sort of MAGA-style Trumpy Republicans, which might work in some states, but not in deep blue states. That's what they did, and they got blown out, obviously. I mean, just like the easiest thing, they had boring, standard-issue Democrats running in both of those states, and they won easily. Like, you know, instant call, not even close. And then there's Arizona, which we will talk more about a little bit later on in the show, but there is now a real risk that Kerry Lake might lose that race as well. While other Republicans in the state are actually doing well, right, other people on statewide races, excluding Lake and Blake Masters, who have won, it looks like in the House of Representatives, the Republicans are doing rather well, and these ballot dumps are actually helping those Republicans take the lead and and uh, boost and sort of fortify and pad those leads in the House races in Arizona. So that's something to keep an eye on. But if Carrie Lake is unable to make up the difference, I think she just made up some of the votes in a a dump from one county, I think Pima County, within the last hour or so. But if she can't get over the top here, as they're getting finally close to getting all these ballots counted, then that would be another pickup for the Democrats of a governor's uh, of a governor's mansion. Doug Ducey had won that governorship pretty easily last time he ran. He's term limited, and so it's this open seat, and we'll see if the Democrats could then basically sweep the state in terms of Biden having won it. They've won the last three Senate races in that state. Then they would have the governorship, too. I mean, that is a purple to blue state, although underlying Republicanism and sort of red elements in the state still clearly have some pull based on what we're going to see in the House races. That is something that Arizona Republicans need to think about, the types of people that they're going to run statewide. I'll return, as I mentioned, to Arizona coming up a little bit later on in the show. But on the House, it is looking increasingly likely that Republicans are going to win the House. Now, the fact that we can't say that definitively six days after the election, I think, further underscores what an underwhelming election cycle this has been, certainly relative to expectations and a lot of the polling and actually some of the outcomes as well. Like if you look at the national vote, all the House of Representatives races combined, which is kind of like a proxy for a popular vote nationally, especially in a midterm. 
It's not really a metric that's meaningful, just like the popular vote in a presidential election isn't meaningful. It's not the system. Right? The system is the Electoral College in the House. The system is each individual race. But if you take all of the votes that have been cast all across the country in every district, Republicans are currently leading by millions of votes. And in all likelihood, they will win that total vote by millions of votes. The estimate is when all of the votes trickle in from the West Coast, don't get me started on the counting, drives me absolutely crazy. I addressed it last week. But when at long last we get some final numbers, some finality, God knows when, weeks, who knows, out there. But when all of the numbers are tabulated and computed, the Republican, the estimate is the Republicans will win the House popular vote by around four points. So R plus four, you would think that is a red wave for sure, just given that particular data point. But because of a bunch of different factors, Democrats having some good incumbents, Republicans with some challenged people running against them, right? Some flawed challengers out there, red places getting redder, blue cases or uh, blue districts and states getting bluer. It just sort of is turning out that even an R plus four popular vote and a majority for the Republicans won by millions of votes isn't going to really translate into all that many gains. Right. Probably it looks like enough gains to win the chamber back, but not with any sort of significant cushion. Now, the fact that that will and that effect will benefit the Democrats, relatively speaking, and hurt the Republicans, I suspect won't result in a bunch of screeching and caterwauling from the left about how our institutions are broken and anti-majoritarian and anti-democratic. This is what they say when they don't get their way. Right. With the U.S. Senate or the Electoral College, when they feel like some number gives them this sense of entitlement that they should have done better than they did under the system in place, they want to blow up the system and challenge the whole system. Well, in this case, it's kind of like the opposite effect of when a Republican wins the White House despite losing the popular vote. Now, this is an effect that's in reverse, and I just haven't seen a lot of hand wringing about how broken our institutions are. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if they're just about their own power. Imagine that. But overall, as you start to sort of zoom in and dig into some of the numbers, it appears, I'm going to say this tentatively, as though the Republicans in the House are on track to maybe get 220, 221 seats, which if they do that, if they achieve that, which is kind of how it's looking right now, the way it's shaping up, that would be almost exactly a mirror image of what the Pelosi majority is right now and has been for the last two years. Extremely close, but flipping red and taking the gavel from her. That has not been called, that has not been projected, but that is the way it's looking on the arc of some of these races. I can get into a few of those when we come back. Plus, I want to respond to a point that some conservatives are making, like, is it worth having the House if it's such a tight dysfunctional majority. I I do have some thoughts on that. I will give them to you, plus so much more still to come. From London today and tomorrow, it's The Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Just peeking still ahead here at the House of Representatives and what might be happening there. Republicans getting what they need in Arizona. It looks like they're holding the line in California in those races that they need. There are two toss-ups out there that would be sort of a little bit of breathing room should the Republicans win one or both of those races. But last I checked, it was earlier this afternoon. In fact, I can refresh the page right here at the New York Times. They are just counting at a glacial pace out there. It's just so embarrassing, especially when there's so much on the line to wait and wait and wait. Yeah, In the 13th district, the Republican is barely ahead. It could go either way. Only 61 percent of the vote has been counted. It is Monday after the Tuesday election last week. And then in California 22, where the Republicans up by a bigger margin, only 53 percent of the vote is like 53 percent. Six days later, to me, it's just completely unacceptable. But elsewhere, Republicans are appearing to get the job done in California. So uh, no one is calling it yet. There are some races a little bit scary, like, you know, Lauren Boebert barely clinging on in a district that was drawn to be more Republican out in Colorado. But some of her stunts and the things that she's done turned off some folks. She has a very flawed Democratic opponent who's trailing just by like a thousand votes or something. And they're waiting for overseas ballots and military ballots to come in and they're curing ballots. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. There have been some other blown seats elsewhere where failed and flawed Republican candidates, even in strongly Republican districts, have not won. Like they just gave one away in Washington state, for example. By throwing out the woman who voted to impeach Trump, she was going to win that district by double digits. Well, then they put someone else in there and he lost to a Democrat, R plus 13 district. I will say this, if the Republicans pull it out and they end up with even a very small majority of a few votes, I've seen a few people wondering, is it even worth it? It'll be dysfunctional. It'll be ugly. It'll be hard for them to corral the caucus. Is it really worth having that small of a majority? The answer to me is absolutely yes. You get to stop the Democrats' agenda in its tracks. None of these big reconciliation spending bills for the Democrats to do on a party-line basis. And you control the committees, including oversight. You can have hearings. Absolutely a majority is worth it and necessary. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from London. Very glad to have you all along. This new broadcast week underway. Let's get to our first guest of the week. It's Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com. Hello, Carol. Welcome back. 
Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me from London. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened in your state last Tuesday. Uh, you know, I just spent the first half hour of the show talking about the current state of play and how it looks like the Republicans will probably eke out a very small House majority, and they've already lost the Senate, although they can at least get one of those seats back potentially in Georgia. Not what the Republicans were hoping for or expecting going into last week. Here we are, though. And the one big, bright spot in the whole country, and there were some others, Ohio and North Carolina and Iowa and other places, it was not you know uniformly bad news at all for the Republicans, but the crimson, deep, deep red highlight of the evening was Florida and the absolute destruction that was visited upon the Democrats of Florida by Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio and a lot of other Republicans. You moved down to Florida, as did a lot of people from New York because of the pandemic and pandemic policies. This was your first election as a Floridian. You were in the ballroom when DeSantis went up to declare victory, and it wasn't just a you know a victory, it was a 20-point blowout landslide. Talk about sort of the energy in the room, and I know he actually talked to you afterwards, right on his way, on his way off the stage. Just give us a little color commentary of what happened there. So I think we all knew that DeSantis was going to win. Um, I think the question was just by how much. And shortly before the results were announced, his campaign manager, who I'm friendly with, said to me, what do you think? How much do you think he's going to win by? And I thought of a really high number, and I said 7%. So, you know, I thought seven percent was was I thought that was astronomical for Florida. Like, that, you know, I, Jeb Bush won by 13, but that has really has not been done in a very long time. And I it, it is I thought it's still OK it's a red state for sure. But I, I didn't think we were this lopsided. And so I thought seven was a very strong guess. And I thought that a seven point lead would indicate a landslide. So uh, when I told her that. Oh, apparently, she went to the governor and said, you know, Carol Markowitz thinks he's going to win by seven. And when he won by, of course, almost 20, uh, when he got off stage, he was saying hello to people. And I happened to be in, in the front. Um, and he came up to me and he said, you didn't think I was going to win by this much, which is absolutely accurate. And he <laughs> said, you know, that <laughs> he said that I, I helped, you know, because I was, he thanked people who had moved to Florida and voted for him. Um, and I, obviously, I'm in that category. And then he kind of made a sort of a, a dark joke about how uh, Lee Zeldin didn't win because of me. And there's a lot of people on Twitter who made who made that joke that night also because I was, uh, you know, kind of very open about my Florida move, but I still root for New York. And so I, I got a lot of, you know, Lee Zeldin lost because of you in a joking fashion. Um, and, you know, that's also probably so- somewhat true. I think New York lost a lot of people. It's lost a lot of conservatives. Um, and it's really unfortunate that Zeldin couldn't pu- pull it off. But the mood yeah. in the DeSantis room was just amazing. Um, really, it, it felt revolution kind of sensation. I, You know, the, the Peggy Noonan book, What I Saw at the Revolution about the Reagan years, it felt like that to me. Like this was the start of something big, something that's not just this election season, but something that's going to continue to grow. I will say that I was sort of with you at 7% for a long time this cycle and then watching the early numbers come in the way that they were and just hearing from some folks on the ground, I upped my estimate to 10 to 12 that range, which would have been for sure a total blowout if he had won by 10 to 12. And then he won by 19 and a half points, which completely blew me away. 
in no world did I expect anywhere close to that. And, and yet that is what happened. It is interesting to say, like, you know, if you look at some of these close races in other places, how many voters left those other places for Florida or for Texas or something like that with red areas getting redder, blue areas getting bluer. That is kind of part of what's happening here, which, as I mentioned earlier in the hour, is part of the reason why Republicans are probably going to end up winning by four points in the national House vote all combined, but only flip like around 2% of the seats because there's this strange sorting that's going on in our country. And then also the fact that a lot of independents who flocked to some Republicans like Ron DeSantis and some of these other governors who won, they weren't as eager to vote for Republicans at the federal level. And that's one, I think, of the glaring problems that the Republicans have to grapple with moving forward, Carol. And you talked about how this was almost like a revolutionary feeling and it was so much excitement about you know what's coming in the future. And maybe not just for Florida, DeSantis made, I think, maybe the most powerful statement he possibly could have in terms of what might be next for him. And obviously the Democrats in the media watched that with great apprehension because they hate him and they've been trying to take him out for four years. They failed spectacularly down in Florida. Someone else who obviously took note is former President Donald Trump. We talked about this last week on the show, that, that rant that he put out on social media, this long statement about DeSantis being disloyal and, you know, not not doing and waiting his turn and being coy and, and all this sort of thing uh, that he put out saying Trump deserved all the credit for DeSantis and, and all that, uh, in my mind, nonsense or borderline nonsense, depending on which piece you want to pick apart. I just wonder what you thought of that, seeing it come from Trump and also seeing it come kind of preemptively and unprovoked. DeSantis didn't do or say something about Trump. He just won in a huge eye-grabbing way. And I think that obviously is what triggered this from Trump. Yeah, I, I actually think it's a misplay from Trump. And I think that we kind of saw him walk it back a little bit um, the next day when he went he voted for DeSantis. Um, I, I think that wasn't the next day after the or maybe two days later after his initial shots at DeSantis. Um, so I I think he's going to end up softening this a little bit. And I, I say that, and I know, you know, we've watched Donald Trump for years and years. We know he generally does not soften things. But I think that this was such a misstep that he's hearing from his own people that this is not the way to go. It's just too early. It's There's nobody, including Donald Trump, who can sustain this level of kind of anger or um, fighting atmosphere for 18 months. This is the reason people don't announce so early. It's it's really hard to continue this battle for so long. And I just, I, I have a real hard time envisioning how Donald Trump is going to do that. The other thing I would say is that for a long time, the line that I always used to kind of make fun of, and I used to say it myself at some point, and that's when I kind of realized how ridiculous it sounded, but the I'm no Trump fan, but remember that it was always like, I'm no Trump fan, but this policy of his is good. Um, Mm -hmm. But now I'm hearing much more. I am a Trump fan, but I'm a Trump fan, but I don't like this. I'm a Trump fan, but I'm not happy with the way he's handling this. And I have to imagine that even though I know Mm. he doesn't really listen to a lot of people, he's he's going to hear this from enough people. He's going to see this, you know, tweeted from enough people that I I kind of think he's going to relax a bit, um, especially as it's so long out of the election season. And I, I just, again, can't see it lasting for this long. 
Yeah, especially with DeSantis not responding. Right. DeSantis is doing his job. There was another storm that hit the state. There's a legislative session coming up. And if he's not giving it oxygen, then it just looks at this weird, like one sided fixation, which is not a good look. I think that's a very insightful point. I'm not a Trump fan, but and now it's I am a Trump fan. But and some of those folks are saying I am a Trump fan, but I don't like what he's doing with DeSantis and to a lesser extent, Yunkin. I don't like what he's doing here. I wish he would knock that off. There's also people, Carol, there's a, a, I would say, growing category of people that say, I am a Trump fan, but it's time for something else. It's time to move on, something younger, someone who can fight like Trump does, but better and, and win in the next generation. A lot of people are looking to DeSantis for that. And I know it's insanely early to be talking about any of this, but Trump is probably going to announce for president tomorrow, right? The timeline that you just talked about was he sort of rolled out the Ron DeSanctimonious nickname before the election, softened it a little bit the next day, then and voted for DeSantis. And then within a few days of DeSantis winning that huge landslide, that historic landslide, this onslaught, this huge, just, I don't know what to call it aside from a screed against DeSantis unprovoked, raised a lot of eyebrows. And I think some folks are saying, you know, no, thank you enough. It's just, it's exhausting. It's baggage. We, we don't want this. And we're ready to really look at, at a new opportunity here, Carol. And there's a new poll from YouGov, came out, I think I saw it yesterday, that for the first time, DeSantis has now taken the lead in the national head-to-head among Republicans looking at 2024. And we've seen some state-level polls that show that in Florida, Georgia. There's a new one out of Texas where DeSantis has now taken the lead. Look, we are so far removed that those numbers don't really matter that much because a lot can and will change. But to your point, there is a clear, large contingent of Republican voters, two-time Trump supporters, who are looking at what happened on Tuesday, looking at the road ahead, and are at least very much open to something new and different. I think that's undeniable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely, I'm seeing the same trends as you are. Um, I also, I don't think it's bad for the Republican Party to have a serious primary where our ideas are hashed out. I think part of what happened in this election is that people tried to go too personality heavy. Um, a lot of the candidates were telling their life stories a little too much. Um, and I, I don't think that the ideas came across here, like what the candidates were running on. I mean, how much we heard, for example, about Dr. Oz, how much did we hear about what he was going to do? And I, I think that the personality driven elections really are not going to be good for us going forward. You're going to have the occasional 2016, but then you're also going to have the occasional 2020. And it's it's not a positive way to move forward. So I'd love to see a primary where we hash out what we stand for and what the ideas going forward should be. And I think mm-hmm. it would make whoever the candidate is stronger to come out of it, um, having battled that. And, you know, I think personality should take a, a backseat for now. And, you know, Carol, because people ask me about DeSantis all the time. I did an event with conservatives and Republicans here in the U.K. yesterday, and everyone wanted to talk about DeSantis. And what I've said, and I've actually said this to DeSantis's team as well, which is if he's thinking about running for president, and I think he's thinking about it. I don't know if he's going to do it, but if he runs, a couple things to consider are picking your time, picking your moment, understanding your moment. And I think there would be a risk potentially to waiting 2024 or waiting to 2028 instead of 2024 because he's extremely relevant right now and just did what he did in Florida, 
which got a lot of attention for good reason. But there's also this notion that even if you are this, you know, tough governor that the base loves and you you beat the left in your state and did some extraordinary things, you know, on paper, you might be a really strong, even potential front runner for the next presidential election. But look how that worked out in 2016 for Scott Walker in Wisconsin. Right. Walker, I think, had a lot of people like me very open to him as the nominee in 2016. You saw his record of success in Wisconsin, what he was able to do. Then he became a presidential candidate and just didn't get the job done. He wasn't good on the national stage. I think he was served poorly by some of his advisors and consultants and all of that. And he didn't even make it to Iowa eventually. So the idea that there would be some sort of coronation of anyone, whether it's Ron DeSantis or someone else, you got to prove yourself not just in your state, but nationally. I would argue that DeSantis has sort of done that, given all the national attention and you know attacks from the national media. But it's a very different beast than being a presidential candidate. And there's the Scott Walker cautionary tale as well for him, Carol. Yeah. The only thing I would say is I also like Scott Walker, and I was also really kind of surprised that he didn't get he didn't get to Iowa. But I would say that the DeSantis, just if he were to get in, would be on a totally different playing field. I mean, I just that's right. for one thing, how much um, fun, uh, you know, different uh, contributors to campaigns like him, how much people are motivated towards him. I mean, again, towards his state. It's it's a big thing that a lot of people moved here because of his policies. I, I, I always say, like, I don't remember the last time a politician affected my actual life or maybe Giuliani in the 90s in New York and that's it um, but this is he, he has made real significant changes not just to Florida but to our political system oh yeah no I'm, I'm not saying it's a perfect comparison Walker 2016 to potentially DeSantis 2024 it's just something to keep in mind that you got to earn it you got to prove it and I think DeSantis might at some point want to prove it. And uh, we'll so we'll know, I guess, in the coming months. Carol Markowitz, our guest, a good writer on the right. We always enjoy Carol on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back here on The Guy Benson Show. Last week, we talked about some of the economic numbers and the market soared because inflation looked like maybe it was starting to ease. Still very high. Still near multi-decade highs, but the numbers were less bad than the experts had anticipated. And therefore, there was a round of hope that maybe the inflation scourge had peaked and we might be on the downslope. And by the way, it'll take a while. It's not like it's going to go away overnight. It's going to take quite some time to get back to more acceptable levels. But that would be improvement if we get there. Part of the reason that it's happening is because the Fed is basically engaged in chemotherapy on the economy to kill inflation. And there are knock-on effects, there are after effects that are bad for the economy. That's like the consequence of this. There are consequences to bad policies and huge overspending, which is what the Democrats are responsible for. So the next step, a lot of people worry, is a double-dip recession. We had a little mini-recession in the first two quarters of the year, and then next year or the year after, There could be this slowdown where other economic factors start to go south because inflation is being tamed by virtue of slowing down the economy deliberately. Now, I don't know how bad that's going to get. I don't have any sort of special insight by any stretch of the imagination. I just know a lot of smart people say even if it's a soft landing or a harder landing, there are going to be some difficult, bumpy times ahead economically. And on that front, here's a story today in the New York Times. 
Headline, Amazon is said to plan to lay off thousands of employees. The job cuts that are expected of approximately 10,000 jobs would start as soon as this week and would focus the company's devices, organization, and retail division and its human resources division. So, I mean, 10,000 corporate and tech layoffs at a company like Amazon is absolutely something that makes you sit up and pay some attention. That is not a nothing story. And the Times also says the total number of layoffs remains fluid, but approximately 10,000 is the expectation, which would be roughly 3% of the corporate workforce at Amazon, which is this huge leviathan. And if there's a company that kind of might know what's coming down the pike based on their entire system and how dominant they are and how many fingers they have in multiple pies of the economy, and they might kind of get a sense of what's on the horizon, Amazon might be it, right? So that's at least kind of a potential canary in a coal mine situation with the future of the economy, the labor force, and tough decisions that some companies might be making here over the coming weeks, months, or even years. We want to flag that for you here on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, we will get to a bunch of different topics, including immigration. President Biden's top Border Patrol official is out, pressured and basically forced to resign over the weekend in a very public battle. What does it mean? Will it change anything at all? Or is it a scapegoating situation, even if it happens to be deserved? We will ask Tom Homan, former ICE chief, on The Guy Benson Show in our next hour, coming right up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour here on the guy benson show our middle hour of three on this monday thank you so much for listening coming to you from london england today and tomorrow glad to have you all here guybensonshow.com that's our website GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free after the program every day, on demand, no charge. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms as well. Well, joining us now from New York in our headquarters is Tom Homan, former acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, also a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And, Tom, it's been a while, and it's good to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. I would like to begin with the forced resignation of the Border Patrol chief under President Biden, Chris Magnus. So he was under fire really for a while now. He's been on the job, I believe, less than a year. And you saw some of the slings and arrows coming for him There was a very clear hit piece in Politico against him where he was getting trashed, saying he was falling asleep at meetings and not really engaged and focused on frivolous stuff and not really getting the job done. I'm sort of trying to figure out in my own mind, because we talked about that Politico story when it came out last month, is this the administration engaging in scapegoating, trying to turn him into like, you know, the problem so they're going to throw him under the bus? Or does he deserve to be thrown under the bus? Or is it a little bit of both? 
Well, I, it's a little bit of both. Look, when he was first nominated, I remember doing a show with Griff Jenkins that Saturday saying it's, it's, it was a terrible, terrible nomination. When he was the chief of police for Tucson, he had outstanding orders for his police officers not to work with, not to assist Border Patrol in any incident. Weren't to work with him. Even if it involved the public safety threat walking the streets of Tucson, his officers were ordered no cooperation with the Border Patrol. He, he supported sanctuary cities. He attacked the uh, uh, Trump border policies that gave us the most secure border in my lifetime. He, they hired him for his ideology. They knew he would do exactly what they wanted him to do, which was not enforce law on the border. And, you know, them getting rid of him, I think, are, number one, making him a partially a scapegoat. But if Alejandro Mayorkas has been telling us the truth, if he told the truth when he was under oath in front of Congress, the border's secure, the border's closed, Chris Magnus should be getting an award not getting fired. There's one reason he's leaving. He's leaving before oversight hearings. They don't want him here. They want him to leave. That's all. This Alejandro Mayorkas is showing his poor leadership again, throwing this guy under the bus, saying he's a problem, but this guy did exactly what Alejandro Mayorkas wanted him to do. I got a lot of friends in senior leadership at CBP. This guy did exactly what he was told to do. They're getting rid of him because they're afraid of oversight hearings. I mean, couldn't they pull him up to Capitol Hill anyway, even though he'd be gone? Couldn't they subpoena him and ask him the questions, whether he's on the job or not? I hope they do. I hope they do. But there's, there, there's no other reason to get rid of the man. Again, he did exactly what – look, he, he didn't get out there and defend the horse patrol. He's never given, uh, he's never given a, a press conference to talk about the crisis on the border. He's never went out to a border patrol field and told those guys, and the men and women wearing the uniform, here's the strategy – Here's the plan. His first his first meeting in Yuma, Arizona, with the, with the with the troops, he told them because one of the agents said, you know, the Trump policies worked. Can we turn some of them back on? We're overwhelmed. We're getting our, our butts kicked. His response to them was, if we don't like the policies of this administration, quit. That's not leadership. This again, he didn't enforce laws on the border. He wasn't involved with any strategy to secure the border. That exactly what Alejandro Mayorkas wanted. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I think, a confirmation of what you're saying of how I view this. On one hand, I'm not terribly upset to see him go because he was bad at the job, should never have been put there in the first place, a bad pick by President Biden. He was, according to all these sources, disengaged, nodding off, not really caring, chasing down rabbit holes on woke nonsense and not really getting on with the actual job of securing the border. That being said, to your point, Tom, even if you had someone hyper-competent, highly interested in doing the job, very engaged, earning the respect of the you know frontline agents, even if you had a perfect person in this position under President Biden, that'd be, I guess, an improvement marginally, but still the underlying policies are what they are. And as long as you have President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas doing what they're doing, and insisting on these failing policies, you can have the best person on earth in that job, and it will still be a mess because the mess is being directed from the very top. You're exactly right. I agree with you 100%. And they hired him based on his ideology. He believed in open borders. And another thing they hired him for is reform. They wanted the Border Patrol knocked down a few levels. He, he, he got into office. He started looking at the use of force policy, uh, um, you know, all the uh, high-speed chase policy. He looked at everything that the Border Patrol is doing to try to change policies on use of force, high-speed chases, uh, assault investigations. He went in there for one purpose, 
to clean up the border patrol, in, in the words of, of, of the left, clean them up. They're too big for their britches. And everything he worked on when he was sitting in that desk, I've been told by senior staff there, was all about how do I take the border patrol and, and, and reinvent them to be a like friendly. Like cutting them down to size, yeah, which is crazy given what we know about the crisis and these record numbers. And just last month, I know it sort of went unnoticed, but the numbers in October were awful. A new October record after last year's October record, more than 60,000 known gotaways that month alone. I mean, the thing is still raging out of control. And I mean, you can say, well, you know, shame on him. But if he's carrying out even somewhat poorly what is being directed from above, it's kind of like, okay, I know we want some accountability and they almost never fire anyone. So the fact that this person was essentially fired is, I guess, better than nothing. But you're almost like, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. If the thing is still going down because of the policies, you know, some of these cosmetic changes in certain positions ultimately don't really matter all that much. That's at least my impression. No, you're right. And nothing's going to change with Chris Magnus out the door. Nothing's going to change. They're going to put Troy Miller, the deputy, back in charge. He was acting uh, commissioner for a while. He knows nothing about the board, Joe. He, he served in OFO, Office of Field Operations. So it's going to get back to what it was in the beginning of the administration under Troy Miller, who also did nothing to secure the border. This all comes from the White House. This all comes from Alejandro Mayorkas. And, and until he's gone, until they impeach him and take action, nothing's going to change on the border. I do not see this administration changing gears. They're doing exactly what they promised during the campaign. They kept their promises by signing over 90 executive orders getting rid of dismantling everything the Trump administration has done, you see the results. And like you said, since he'd been president, over 4 million entries that were, in, were encountered, over 1 million gotaways, that's 5 million people entered this country illegally since he'd been in the White House. That's unheard of. And, and there's one reason why they're not, everybody says, well, what are they doing with them? Well, they're not detaining them. And why aren't they detaining them? This is also part of the plan. Because Homeland Security Lifecycle Report data for the last 10 years shows if you're in detention, and you get order removed by a judge, you're removed 99% of the time. However, if you're not in detention, you get order removed by a judge. If you're a child, you get removed 3% of the time. If you're a family unit, 6% of the time. That's why they're not detaining them, because they know 90% will lose their case in court if they show up. But no one's leaving. That's why they're mm-hmm. not being detained. These, and let me ask you something. Five men. Does anybody really think these people are going to leave? Because if you look at the, the, the biggest number we ever had in history of ICE and deport, deportations was 409,000 back in FY12. There's no way to remove this many people, and they know that. So if they release them, they're in the wind, they're going to hang out for the next God giveaway, the next amnesty, and they're going to reward them. There's no way we're going to be able to remove all these people. This administration well, knows by releasing them, we'll never remove them. Well, and as you pointed out, in a lot of cases, folks don't show up for court. In other cases, there's such a backlog in terms of adjudicating the cases, I saw one report just recently that a lot of these families wait for years until they even have a court date. And then they get sort of normalized into society and then it becomes, you know, mean-spirited and cruel to remove them because they've been here for years and it becomes almost like this self-fulfilling argument, right, where you're like in this tautology where it's like, well, you can't do this because this, but they're only in that position because of the strain and the dysfunction and round and round we go. But I'm afraid... Tom, that your point about no pivot is correct, and you don't have to take my word for it or your word for it. When President Biden was asked the day after the election about what he planned to change in his approach to the presidency for these next two years, his answer was nothing. His word that he used was nothing. And perhaps a bitter 
pill to swallow here, Tom, is a lot of the senators in particular who were most complicit in the border crisis and unwilling to really do anything, even though their states were being heavily impacted. Some of these Biden rubber stamps all got reelected, including in Arizona and Nevada and elsewhere. So to some extent, voters might be unhappy with the border crisis, but not unhappy enough to really do much about it when it comes to throwing people who are responsible out of office. And I mean, you talk about political incentives. That's not a good one. If we're looking at progress here, that must have a morale effect on the men and women who are actually trying to do this job. Well, two things. First of all, you're right on it's going to take years backlog of the immigration court. But it's about to get worse, guy, because the Biden administration just last week awarded a multi-million dollar contract to an NGO that's going to supply attorneys to illegal aliens to fight their, to fight their deportation cases. So you thought the backlog was uh, was big now? Wait till they start getting an attorney to file appeal after appeal after appeal at taxpayer expense, by the way. Oh. That's, that's something Biden just also did. So they're not trying to fix this crisis. That's crazy, actually. Yes. I mean, it's just like a completely insane approach to trying to enforce our laws. I mean, they're not. I guess that's the point. They're not trying to enforce the laws, but go on. And the and, and second thing, the morale, the morale is non-existent. I agree with you. Here's a problem. I think a lot of people care about the border, but only if you're watching Fox Nation or, 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 or Fox News. We're the only network talking about it. Shows like yours. I'm, you know, I'm, on, I'm on Fox, but if you go to CNN, MSCC, any of these other networks, and I actually do that to see what they're saying, a lot of America doesn't even know there's a border crisis. Because their networks aren't covering, they're beginning to protect this administration, protect Biden. So they're not talking about if the American people knew that millions of people enter this country illegally and they're buying their plane tickets at taxpayer expense to go to the city of their choice, their destination, I think they'd be upset. If the American people know that Border Patrol is overwhelmed to the point 70 to 80 percent of them are off the line, which is why the fentanyl is coming across that, why, why a border has killed over 100,000 Americans. That's why no one suspected terrorists, 114 already arrested, one million gotaways. How many of them are no suspected terrorists? It's just why there's a record number of sex trafficking in women and children right now. If Americans knew what the effect of this massive historic illegal immigration crisis was, it's just about it's just not about illegal immigration anymore. It's about public safety. It's about public health. It's about national security. If they knew the facts, they would care and they'd vote. They'd vote their intentions. But the problem is, Fox is about the only network out there talking about it in shows yeah, and- in radio shows like yours. And and folks, I think, intuitively know there's a problem, and uh, often the president's approval rating on the issue of immigration is low, and people trust Republicans more on border security. But it's not necessarily ranking way up there in terms of voter priorities, obviously, at least in a lot of these places, Uh, an exception being Texas, where they're getting hit very, very hard. And we saw uh, Greg Abbott win resoundingly in Texas and, and a number of these members of Congress who've been very outspoken. So it's not all bad news on that front. But I think what you said there is frustrating to hear, but also undeniably true. And I guess last question, Tom Homan, what comes next here? Because the headline for a day or two will be Border Patrol chief ousted amid crisis and controversy. And it'll seem like, okay, something has happened at least. But then what? This isn't going to get better. They need need to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas if they take control of the House. They need to have oversight hearings and pull these people in under oath. 
and, and have guys like me, I'll write the questions for them. Because, you know, the problem with a lot of the senators and congressmen, they, they ask these questions, and they're easy to dance around. you got to know exactly what to ask so they can't dance if they're under oath. So they need oversight hearings. They need, they need to um, um, control the purse strings. They need to demand, if, if Republicans take the House, demand that the Biden administration show us one thing you're going to do to slow the flow. Show us one strategy that you're going to do to secure our border and protect, the, protect this country, or we'll shut it down. And people say, well, that's, you know, that's going a long way, shutting the government down. At what point's enough enough? And I'll say this. This is why I've been pushing this for the last several months. I don't care what your opinion is on illegal immigration. When you overwhelm the Border Patrol, where 70, 80 percent are off the line, they've already arrested 114 known suspected terrorists. We mm-hmm. got it. We, they've arrested people from 161 different countries. Many of these countries are sponsors of terrorism. We got one million recorded gotaways. These are known gotaways. If you don't Since think, Biden took office, right, a million. A million. Yeah, absolutely. And these are on camera, drone traffic, and central traffic. These are recorded. If you don't think a single one of the one million gotaways that came across this border did not come from a country that sponsors terrorism. And the reason they didn't turn themselves into Border Patrol to get released and get a free airline ticket to the city of their choice because they don't want to be fingerprinted, there's a reason. This just scared the hell out of every American. Yeah, it could be – and also like you know, gang members, you know, drug cartel folks, uh, convicted felons. It's a group of people that would be presumably disproportionately represented in the gotaways. And the one million number that you cited is just the ones that we know of who got away. There's a whole other universe that we always talk about of unknown gotaways. And God knows what the number is in total here. And with the border not closed, not secure, despite the lies from the administration, it's a guessing game. And it's a concerning one for the reasons that you just outlined. Tom Homan, former acting ICE director, now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show, reacting to the news over the weekend which, again, is kind of just a superficial move that doesn't change the underlying policy. That is the core of the problem. Tom, we appreciate your time, as we always do. Thanks for having me, Guy. Let's step aside. Let's come right back. Short break. It's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Some attention being paid today to an interview that former Vice President Mike Pence has given to ABC News, where January 6th came up. Pence said that President Trump's words and behavior after the 2020 election, and particularly on January 6th, quote, endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol. They put out an excerpt of part of the interview. Here's just a snippet of what Pence said in Cut 24. In the middle of it all, you can see that the president has tweeted. 2.24 p.m., the president tweets, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter, who was standing nearby, and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. So that is Trump's former vice president saying what he has said. It's his first network TV interview since January 6th. Now, if you're a cynic or you don't support Pence or you're a Trump loyalist, you would point out, well, he's now selling a book. He's got the memoir, So Help Me God, coming out this week. And so he's going to make the rounds and try to make a big splash and get attention for the book, which is fair. I think that's certainly part of it. He's chosen this time to speak out because it's coinciding with the book release. I get it. He's also apparently seriously looking at a presidential run. 
in 2024. So if he's going to have a big break with Trump, maybe this is the moment that he's going to start going more public, more aggressive about that. Now, how that plays for him, whether he has a real constituency to have any chance in a presidential primary, that's a separate question. But, you know, this is the president's former running mate and vice president saying these things. Obviously, it's going to make news. We'll take a break. When we come back, let's talk about President Biden's trip to Indonesia, his meeting today with Xi Jinping of China. Gordon Chang is here with analysis straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We return now to the Guy Benson Show from London. Thank you for listening. Halfway through today's Monday edition, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free when the show is over. Joining us now is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. And Gordon, welcome back. Thank you so much, Guy. So the president is over in Bali in Indonesia. We checked in toward the end of last week with Peter Ducey. He was traveling with the president. One of the most anticipated elements and agenda items on the president's itinerary was this meeting with Chairman Xi of the Chinese Communist Party. Fairly significant. We have some sound of what President Biden said following that meeting. The White House also put out a readout of what the two leaders talked about. Here is sort of the bottom line summary from the president. Cut 27. I just met in person with Xi Jinping of the People's Republic of China. We had, <coughs> excuse me, we had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear, he was clear and I was clear, that we'll defend American interests and values, promote universal human rights, and stand up for the international order and work in lockstep with our allies and partners. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. And I want to make sure, make sure that every country abides by the international rules of the road. And we discussed that. All right. And then there was during the Q&A after the president's statement, a question about the nature of the exchange between the two world leaders. Here's what that sounded like in Cut 25. So now that you've met with him face to face, how do you assess um, his sort of posture towards the United States now? And did you find him personally to be more confrontational or more conciliatory and willing to compromise? Neither and yes. I'm, yes, I didn't find him more confrontational or more conciliatory. I found him the way he's always been, direct and straightforward. And uh, do I think he's willing to compromise on various issues? Yes. And one of those compromises that he was touting was on climate change, for example. OK, Gordon, your overall impression of what happened today, what the president is saying about it, what are your takeaways? The most important thing is that the, President Biden talked about the establishment of working groups between American and Chinese officials. And, you know, I know that that sounds good to the ear, but we have heard this before. It hasn't worked before. And the problem is that while we talk, um, the Chinese continue unacceptable behavior and we do not impose costs. Uh, and until we impose those costs, we're not going to make any progress. So the big concern is that the Chinese were successful in delaying the president from doing the things that he needs to do to defend us from China. Like what? 
Uh, well, first, one thing that was not discussed is COVID-19. Um, we don't know, Guy, 100% where this disease came from, but 100% we know that Xi Jinping decided to spread it beyond his borders. He did that by lying about contagiousness. He knew it was highly transmissible human to human, but he told us and others that it was not. And then while he was locking down his own country, he actually was pressuring others to accept arrivals from China without travel restrictions and quarantines. You put those two things together, and it means that China has actually spread this disease. And that's 1,074,000 Americans have been killed from this disease, according to Johns Hopkins. Fentanyl, last year, another topic. Uh, last year, 77,000, 78,000 Americans died from illegal fentanyl. We know the Communist Party supports the fentanyl gangs, and so each of those deaths are a murder. Um, you know, we're not getting anywhere on this. Um, you know, Biden, um, like Trump, like Obama, knew exactly what was going on, had the means to stop the fentanyl trade, and all three of them decided not to do so. So, you know, you run down the line. Theft of U.S. intellectual property, this, that. You know, there are a million things the Chinese are doing which um, are um, undermining the U.S. And in some cases, he's uh, doing things to try to bring down our government. This is just unacceptable. I mean, I agree it's it's not acceptable. But is the calculus that the Chinese impact on our economy is just too great? And so we can't really go all that hard after them on some things or try to pick certain battles and not go after them on everything. What's the mindset? Well, I think that uh, for different people, there's a different mindset. So you have Wall Street, uh, Walmart, they just don't care. Um, so they want uh, to make short-term money. In the administration, um, I'm sure there are a lot of different views. Some people think exactly as you say, you know, we have to pick our battles. Some people have a defeatist attitude who believe that the Chinese will dominate the world, so we might as well salute them now. Um, other people, you know, probably are leftists. Um, but whatever the reason is, Guy, um, I think the United States does have the power to stop unacceptable Chinese behavior. And the issue has always been political will. We don't have the political will to do what is necessary to defend our republic. So I view this as not just Chinese bad acting. I view this as a failure of Americans um, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, to do what is necessary. In one of those clips that we just heard from the president, he did mention human rights. The readout from the White House said that there were multiple conversations or at least conversation points about human rights, from Xinjiang to other areas, democracy, Hong Kong, that sort of thing, and other meddling that the Chinese and abuses that the Chinese have done, the CCP. Is that meaningful i mean it's it's important i think for us officials to always stand up for human rights to call out the egregious behavior of the chinese to their faces they need to hear it whether it changes their behavior or not it's something that must be said are you encouraged that apparently it was said does it matter sort of how and when it was said cuz that's what we don't know how confrontational you know how aggressive was the president on those points or was it a box checking exercise because he had to get it out of the way to say that he got it out of the way. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, just a couple points. One of them is um, when we talk about Xinjiang, um, 
you know, Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities. It's not just human rights. It's genocide and crimes against humanity. And the United States, as a party to the Genocide Convention of 1948, has an obligation to prevent and to punish acts of genocide. I didn't hear any of that in the White House readout. But the other thing is, um, and, and this is not just a Biden problem. This is a problem that we've seen in previous administrations. Previous administrations don't understand the critical nature of the human rights dialogue. It's the one thing that drives the Chinese berserk when we talk about it. And the reason why is because China believes that its, its regime cannot exist as long as the United States exists. It can't be secure as long as we exist. And the reason is they're worried about our values and our form of governance and the inspirational impact that has on the Chinese people. You know, Xi Jinping may look all powerful, but uh, China is falling away underneath because the Chinese people have had enough. And so they are really, really concerned when we talk about human rights. So Biden needs to actually talk about this in a more forceful way. He, he's, he's better than his predecessors, but he's not nearly as good as he has to be on the issue. Finally, on Taiwan, the president and the White House said that that did come up. And this is where it gets a little bit sticky, because Biden has said a few different times that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily. And then those assurances, those assertions kind of get watered down or walked back. But he's done it a couple different times where he says one thing and then the administration sort of like the officialdom of the administration kind of cleans up after him. His position, which is the official U.S. position and has been under both parties for a while, is that the status quo of Taiwan remains what the U.S. believes should still be intact, right, where it's this somewhat complicated balancing act. What is the official U.S. policy, and do you think the Chinese believe Biden that it's unchanged, given some of the things that he has said, which at least sort of have pushed boundaries a little bit over the last year? Well, the first question, what is our China uh, uh, Taiwan policy? We have a one-China um, policy, which is this. We recognize the Communist Party as a legitimate ruler of China. We acknowledge that Beijing takes the position that Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China, but we do not accept it. Our position officially is that the status of Taiwan is unresolved, and we insist that any resolution of that issue be peaceful. Now, China today, as it has many times, has um, tried to muddy the waters by mischaracterizing our one China policy. I actually believe, you know, you put your finger on the most important element of what Biden said today, and that is that um, there cannot be a unilateral change of the status quo. In other words, that means no Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And I believe that this is one issue where the president actually said the right things, though I would have liked him to say more, but he did say su sufficient um, he, he sufficiently stated our position. The one thing we've got to be worried about, Guy, is that uh, we've said our position on Ukraine. Um, it, China has ignored our warnings about uh, providing support to Vladimir Putin. And because Xi Jinping has seen that we have been feeble on Ukraine, he may believe that we'll also be feeble on Taiwan. That's the real problem here. It's not what Biden said on Taiwan. It's what Biden has failed to do on Ukraine. And on the latter part of my question, how do you think some of Biden's previous statements that have bounced around a bit have been perceived inside the Politburo in Beijing? 
Yeah, Biden on four occasions told journalists that the United States would militarily defend Taiwan. And as you point out, on four occasions, those statements have been walked back by his subordinates. I think that China looks at, knows that Biden wants to defend Taiwan, but I think that they see disarray in the White House and in the Biden administration. And so, therefore, I don't think that they're, uh, you know, sometimes that they're terribly impressed. But I do believe that um, um, they know the, what the president wants to do. Um, the issue is whether he is the wherewithal to corral his administration. Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. You can follow him on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. His analysis today on this significant summit in Bali between the president of the United States and the communist dictator in China. Gordon, we always appreciate your time on this subject. Oh, well, thank you so much, Guy. I really appreciate it on such a consequential day. We will step aside. We'll take a short break. We will return on The Guy Benson Show right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. You know, one of the topics, one of the issues that was a driving factor in the midterm elections, and it had an uneven impact, depending on where you're talking about, which races you're looking at, but it definitely had an impact some places, was crime. And we talked about crime. We went through the stats. I think some of the myths and talking points from the left trying to dismiss it as some sort of Republican talking point, a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy or manipulation from the right. We heard those counterpoints firing back from, for example, Kathy Hochul, who went on to survive, but not before her party really sustained some serious damage in the state of New York from voters. And we talked about it before the election. We're going to continue to talk about it after the election because it's not made up. It's not just some cynical election talking point. It is a real problem in a lot of places, especially major cities in the United States of America. And just burying our head and pretending like it's not happening is a dismissal of reality. Now, one example that we've given, because I mentioned New York, and by the way, on the point in New York, Republicans are now, and I saw a few people citing this statistic, Republicans are now in line to win five House seats in the state of New York, one of which is a hold, four of which are gains, in Biden won districts where Biden won by larger than his national average, and in two of those five seats, Biden won those seats by double digits. So Dave Wasserman from Cook Political Report says, oh, you can complain about the redistricting and what happened in New York, where the Supreme Court came in and struck down the insane illegal gerrymander of the Democrats. I mean, that's part of the problem for the Democrats. But ultimately, Republicans won in these Biden districts anyway. Four gains, one big hold. That is significant. When the story of the midterm election is written, if and when Republicans win the House, and we talked a little bit about those prospects earlier in the show, New York will end up looming very large. And a big part of why is the issue of crime, which New Yorkers did not just fabricate. They didn't imagine it. It's something that they have seen, they've witnessed, they've experienced, they've watched on their late local news, they've seen in their local newspapers. It resonated because it's real in New York. So I think that's an important point to make. We've also cited Union Station in Washington, D.C. as just kind of a totem of the problem. 
I've mentioned it on multiple occasions. I go through there a lot. It's kind of a ghost town. Starbucks had to close down because they thought it was no longer safe to operate inside the central rail hub in the nation's capital. I think to me it kind of crystallizes a lot of the problem and the decay that we're seeing in a lot of cities. Not just D.C., not just New York. The Washington Post had a pretty lengthy story that came out over the weekend. Headline, Union Station has fallen on hard times. Can it be saved? And the lead just goes through some of the numbers. Union Station has had as many as 100 stores open more than two decades ago. It's down to about 40 retailers and eateries, while more than half of its commercial space sits vacant. Calls for fire and emergency services show the range of problems at the station, including drug and alcohol intoxication, overdoses, and assaults. Meanwhile, foot traffic remains well below pre-pandemic levels, with metro and commuter rail traffic roughly cut in half, even as Amtrak reaches more solid footing. Travelers, commuters, and workers say they are worried about the fate of the 115-year-old landmark, once a vibrant gateway into the nation's capital that was a destination on its own. They cite rising concerns about safety, encounters with those suffering from mental health episodes, and declines in the building's upkeep. Deterioration that became evident years ago was hastened by the pandemic. I'd also say by some of the crime policies in Washington, D.C., and the city council that's very weak on the issue, and the attacks on law enforcement, and the unwillingness of law enforcement officials to actually enforce the law in a lot of cases in the name of so-called progress or justice. So if you go on and you read this story, it interviews a bunch of people, including a custodian who's worked there for decades, commuters who say, now you get in and out as quickly as possible. You see urination and defecation and vomit and all sorts of concerning things, vagrants coming up, asking for money, and then things escalating into assaults sometimes. If you don't want to spend time there because you're nervous about what might happen and it's not a pleasant experience, of course you're not going to then go patronize these businesses, which is why the businesses are going away. It's this spiral that's happening in Union Station, and I think it's an emblem of a larger problem. And the Democrats might have done better than they thought they would in the midterm elections. Uh, They better not mistake that with a stamp of approval of what they've been doing across the country, their agenda, their governance, because there's still an awful lot of very angry people. Crime is real. It's a serious problem. There was some pushback from voters on that, but it's still a live issue. And we're going to keep talking about it on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour here coming up. I have more analysis ahead on the midterm elections. We'll get to that and more next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show from London in the United Kingdom. 
I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All of our content is right there, including our free podcast after the show on demand, no charge, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at Guy Benson Show. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. I wish it were available over here, but it's all over the U.S. now. And you can go to thelongdrink.com to find where it's sold near you as they expand. You can also order online. That's an option. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, at the start of today's show, I brought you the very latest on the election updates and the election outcomes, including some of the calls that were made over the weekend and then the trajectory of some of the House races and kind of the big picture with a few details mixed in. I want to talk a little bit about Arizona as something of an object lesson here in just a moment. Before I get to that, I would like to read to you from a piece written by Yuval Levin at National Review. And Yuval Levin's a very smart guy. When he does a big picture analysis, I tend to pay attention. Now, I understand that some people will disagree with some of his conclusions. I'm not necessarily endorsing every single one of them, but I think it's thoughtful and I think that he's thoughtful. And it kind of aligns with some of the points that I was also making last week. So just a trigger warning that if you were very disappointed by the elections last week, especially if you're a huge Trump supporter, you're probably not going to love all of what he had to say. But I'd like for you to hear it anyway, because this is very much, I think, part of the discussion that's happening right now and that will be happening moving forward. Because we referenced earlier the new YouGov poll that has for the first time Ron DeSantis overtaking Donald Trump nationally among Republicans as the number one choice for the 2024 nomination. There was also a poll out of Texas that had DeSantis vaulting ahead of Trump on that same question by double digits now. Now, some of that could fade. And Lord knows that at this point in 2014, there was no semblance of what was going to happen just two years later available in the polling at the time. So lots of grains of salt all over the place. All that being said, here's Yuval Levin on the message of the midterms is the headline of his post. He says, it would be easy to assume that the reason for this polarized deadlock is that there are almost no winnable voters left and that Americans aren't willing to split their tickets anymore. But this is just not true. When the parties don't go out of their way to repel voters, they can win decent majorities. The reason such majorities have been rare is that both political parties have worked hard to become repulsive to the median voter. This is probably a bigger problem for the Democrats in the long term because they face the challenge of becoming the party of an intensely unpopular elite in a populist time. Swing voters don't like much of what the Democrats increasingly stand for, and that won't be easy for the party to change. For Republicans, it should be clearer than ever that they have trouble reaching potentially winnable swing state voters because of the unhinged appearance and the revolting character of the party's Trump-era incarnation. It is easier to see how that could change, though that does not mean such change will be easy to pull off. The pattern of Republican wins and losses on Tuesday was not random. 
and its message is not hard to discern. It presents itself as a blinking, blaring, screaming sign that reads, Republicans, Trump is your problem. In Georgia and in Ohio, Republican candidates for governor, who were not closely associated with Trump, ran far ahead of Republican candidates for Senate, who were. Many voters were clearly willing to split their tickets. It is painfully evident that Republicans would have had a far easier time winning the Senate seats in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, and elsewhere had they not chosen the Trump-endorsed candidate in the primary. Now, let me just pause here from Yuval Levin's piece, and I would quibble with one of those examples that he gave. Adam Laxalt in Arizona was the mainstream Republican candidate. He was endorsed, yes, by Trump, but also by Mitch McConnell and virtually everyone else. Laxalt was one of the unifying people in the party that seemed to bring everyone together, and yet he still lost, as did every single Republican Senate challenger this year. I think in some of the races, certain types of Republicans struggled more than they needed to and won by smaller margins than they could have. And in other races, they lost. But Laxalt, first of all, Nevada is just a tough Blue state, right? It's a blue state. It takes a lot for Republicans to win there, as they did in the governor race. But that one was a big disappointment. And I don't think it's fair to just lay the Laxalt loss at the feet of Donald Trump because a lot of people were in for Laxalt. Right. So it's not, I think, a, a perfect analogy in this case to use that example. That's just my addition that I wanted to throw in. But back to Yuval Levin at National Review. He writes, the relatively disappointing result for Republicans has a clear cause, and maybe it will finally move Republicans to abandon the ridiculous notion that Donald Trump is an electoral advantage for the party. Sustaining that view has always required painful contortions. The implausible view that Trump's exceedingly narrow win over Hillary Clinton in 2016 was the only way Republicans could have beaten the most unpopular political figure in the 21st century at least in American politics, the bizarre notion that Republican setbacks in 2018 were a function of Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan not being Trumpy enough, the delusional claim that Trump didn't actually lose the presidency in 2020. By persuading themselves of all of this, though, many Republicans have become convinced that narrow, tiny wins are the only possible victories in contemporary American politics. They think doing better isn't possible. They have forgotten what winning a clear majority actually looks like. He says, here's a hint. And he links to the election results in Florida on Tuesday night. He concludes, it is far from clear that Republicans will take the hint and will finally grasp that Trumpism isn't only terrible civics, but also terrible politics. Missing the obvious is a common political vice, as both parties keep proving. But they do have less and less of an excuse. So his bottom line is Republicans, Trump is your problem. Wake up. That's his final line. Now, you can agree with his conclusion about Trump specifically or not. I will note that I think Trump brought a lot of people into the party who were previously disengaged, not energized, not Republicans including a lot of working people. He helped actually expand the party's appeal among some minorities. And he achieved a lot as president. 
And I think no one should try to take those achievements away from Trump. Those are relevant. But he did need that inside straight to win the presidency in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, who's just awful and deeply unpopular and polarizing for years. He pulled it off, but just barely in a huge upset that no one saw coming, including her campaign, including his campaign. And then 2018 was a bad midterm, which is traditionally what happens, although the economy was really good at the time and the Republicans lost regardless. 2020, he lost. 2021, I think his impact on the Georgia runoffs was very unfortunate, cost one or both of those seats. 2022, hugely underwhelming, with at least part of that due to his ongoing influence, at least in the public image, the public perception of the Republican Party. So given that record, and I'd also remind people, when Trump exploded onto the national stage in 2015, the most recent national election had put the Republicans at 54 Senate seats and 247 House seats. Yes, they had lost consecutive presidential elections. Yes, that was concerning. I think there was something to be said about needing someone at the top of the ticket who would be willing to fight, fight hard, sometimes fight a little dirty compared to John McCain and Mitt Romney. I think going with that kind of establishment type person in the future is not what the party or the movement wants or needs. But it doesn't have to be just one person. Like the effective winning fighter thing was plausible for Trump, at least during the first half of his presidency. But the track record since then, yes, a lot of fighting, but not a lot of winning. And I think the winning really has to matter. The 2024 election is going to be really critical. And Republicans need to think about who they enter that fight with, who's holding the torch, carrying the torch into that crucial election at the top of the ticket. Because as we've learned, if at the top of the ticket someone is perceived as toxic or perceived a certain way, swing voters, independent voters in a lot of these important states just won't pull the lever for them, even if they're really ticked off with the Democrats in the direction of the country and disapprove of Joe Biden. That is a huge lesson from Tuesday. And I mentioned Arizona, that I wanted to talk about Arizona, and I will get to those points just as soon as we come back. Got a break. We'll take it and return. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's The Guy Benson Show. And keeping this train of thought on the tracks, I mentioned that I was going to get to Arizona. Here's the analysis that I'll offer there. And they're still counting votes. I mean, it's ridiculous. Almost a week later. And they're going to be counting for days in California. I've already done that rant. Go back to the podcast to open the show from last Thursday. It's just embarrassing. It's inexcusable. I see that they've already conducted and completed a few recounts. Saw like one in New Hampshire, there was a recount. So they've counted and recounted some of their votes in states before some of these other states have even counted at once. Collectively. Absurd. But in Arizona, we'll see how it eventually shakes out. But where things stand right now, you have this dichotomy, and I think it helps illustrate exactly what Yuval Levin wrote about that I just read to you. In that state, the gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, has been trailing. 
I think there's still a possibility that she could win, but it seems to be fading because some of these ballot dumps have not been as helpful to her as they need to be. Blake Masters, also near the top of the ticket, the Senate candidate, he's already lost that race. Both of them are lagging significantly behind a few other Republican barometers in the state. For example, there are nine House seats in the state of Arizona, nine U.S. House seats. Three Three of them them are are blue seats. seats, three of them are red seats, and three of them are battlegrounds. And it appears as though the Republicans are poised to win two-thirds of those seats. It's not totally official and finalized yet, but it looks likely that they will have six of the nine seats in the red category, including all three of the swing districts. So when you add up all of the Republican votes in those House races, the Republican vote share is meaningfully higher than what Kerry Lake or Blake Masters has been able to get at the top of the ticket meaning more people in Arizona, which is still at least like this legacy red state, although right now it's looking bluer and bluer, but most voters in Arizona wanted House Republicans to win. The leading vote-getter, last I checked, in the entire state, is the Republican treasurer, who's just kind of like a normal Republican. The Secretary of State candidate for the Republicans there was an election denier, stop the steal, all of that. He lost. The people of Arizona said no to that. But the treasurer is like a normal Republican and is going to win by like 10 points easily. Top vote getter, again, last I checked, in the whole state. So you look and you juxtapose that outcome in the treasurer race and then adding up all the House votes and the Republicans outpacing the people at the top of their own ticket in the House races combined. That tells you something about an issue that the other candidates have. And I saw a journalist, and I wish I could give exact credit to whoever made this point. It's a smart one. It's not my original point. But this person pointed out that if Kerry Lake ends up losing, which, again, let's just wait until I's are dotted and T's are crossed and one never knows. But if Kerry Lake ends up falling short in the gubernatorial race, she is someone who is obviously a very Trumpy candidate, Trump back, Trump endorsed. That's the big way that she got nominated. The animating issue of her primary campaign was Stop the Steal, 2020 backwards-looking conspiracy stuff. It got her nominated. Now, she is extremely talented. She's extremely well-spoken. She presents herself well. She handled the media quite well. And even though I haven't been a big fan of hers, I couldn't help but admire her political talent. She's charismatic. She's interesting. She's smart. She also had the benefit of running against a truly awful opponent. Katie Hobbs ran a bad campaign, refused to debate, was a bad candidate. She's not this appealing dynamo, the Democrat running in the race. And also Carrie Lake had the advantage of being a well-known news anchor. If you combine all of those factors, she is someone sort of in this category of political actor or candidate who would be in the best potential position to win in spite of the Trump effect or whatever you want to call it. And if she loses, nevertheless, despite all of the advantages that I just listed off, I think that helps clarify the point. It helps make that dynamic even more obvious. Now, look, if there's still a path to victory for Lake, she could win. 
right? And that would make her the exception to this rule that we're talking about. But it's been a struggle, right? If Doug Ducey, for example, were running for reelection, I think he would have won easily, handily already. Or if he had run for that Senate seat, he would have won. That's part of the point here as well. So there's going to be a lot of litigating and relitigating of this. And I know that people are blaming people that they want to blame, right? It's Mitch McConnell's fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. It's you go down the list. And there's probably a little bit of truth to a lot of it. I don't think it's just one big, sweeping, simple answer completely. But Republican voters have to think long and hard about this. Because a choice coming up next year into 2024 is going to be vital. And I would say it's probably premature to be talking so much about Trump. I don't relish this. I'm not going to enjoy constantly talking about this so soon. But based on all the reports, part of the reason we don't really have a choice is because he is thrusting himself into the race tomorrow, two years early. So that's why I think the stakes are pretty high and the dynamics that I described are pretty clear, which is why I wanted to make these points on the show Hopefully in a way that doesn't come across as like lecturing or hectoring or however you might perceive it. But obviously I have a point of view on this, which I'm not going to shy away from because it's part of my job. I just want to do it in a respectful way, a thoughtful way, which is why I brought you Yuval Levin and wanted to put a little bit of meat on the bones in my thinking. And trust me, I think we'll have lots of time to discuss and pour over this moving forward and we will when necessary hopefully not too often but i wanted to say my piece here on this monday and with that we will break we'll come right back the guy benson show happy hour resumes after this break talking about the issues you care about guy benson It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with our friend Carol Markowitz, who's a columnist at The New York Post and FoxNews.com, talking Florida politics, national politics, what happened down in her newly adopted state last week. A lot to get to with Carol Markowitz, and we got to a lot of it. I just wonder what you thought of that, seeing it come from Trump and also seeing it come kind of preemptively and unprovoked DeSantis didn't do or say something about Trump he just won in a huge eye-grabbing way and I think that obviously is what triggered this from Trump yeah I I actually think it's a misplay from Trump and I think that we kind of saw him walk it back a little bit um, the next day when he went he voted for DeSantis Um, I, I think that wasn't the next day after the or maybe two days later after his initial shots at DeSantis. Um, so I, I think he's going to end up softening this a little bit. And I, I say that, and I know, you know, we've watched Donald Trump for years and years. We know he generally does not soften things. But I think that this was such a misstep that he's hearing from his own people that this is not the way to go. It's just too early. It's There's nobody, including Donald Trump, who can sustain this level of kind of anger or um, fighting atmosphere for 18 months. This is the reason people don't announce so early. It's it's really hard to continue this battle for so long. And I just, I, I have a real hard time envisioning how Donald Trump is going to do that. The other thing I would say is that for a long time, the line that I always used to kind of make fun of, and I used to say it myself at some point, and that's when I kind of realized how ridiculous it sounded, but the I'm no Trump fan, but remember that it was always like, I'm no Trump fan, but this policy of his is good. Um, Mm -hmm. 
But now I'm hearing much more, I am a Trump fan, but I'm a Trump fan, but I don't like this. I'm a Trump fan, but I'm not happy with the way he's handling this. And I have to imagine that even though I know mm. he doesn't really listen to a lot of people, he's he's going to hear this from enough people. He's going to see this, you know, tweeted from enough people that I, I kind of think he's going to relax a bit, um, especially as it's so long out of the election season. And I, I just, again, can't see it lasting for this long. Yeah, especially with DeSantis not responding, right? DeSantis is doing his job. There was another storm that hit the state. There's a legislative session coming up. And if he's not giving it oxygen, then it just looks like this weird, like one-sided fixation, which is not a good look. I think that's a very insightful point. I'm not a Trump fan, but, and now it's I am a Trump fan, but, and some of those folks are saying I am a Trump fan, but I don't like what he's doing with DeSantis and to a lesser extent, Yunkin. I don't like what he's doing here. I wish he would knock that off. There's also people, Carol, there's a, a, I would say, growing category of people that say, I am a Trump fan, but it's time for something else. It's time to move on, something younger, someone who can fight like Trump does, but better and, and win in the next generation. A lot of people are looking to DeSantis for that. And I know it's insanely early to be talking about any of this, but Trump is probably going to announce for president tomorrow, right? He, the timeline that you just talked about was he sort of rolled out the Ron DeSanctimonious nickname before the election, softened it a little bit the next day, then and voted for DeSantis. And then within a few days of DeSantis winning that huge landslide, that historic landslide, this onslaught, this huge, just, I don't know what to call it aside from a screed against DeSantis unprovoked, raised a lot of eyebrows. And I think some folks are saying, you know, no, thank you enough. It's just, it's exhausting. It's baggage. We, we don't want this and we're ready to really look at, at a new opportunity here, Carol. And there's a new poll from YouGov, came out, I think I saw it yesterday, that for the first time, DeSantis has now taken the lead in the national head-to-head among Republicans looking at 2024. And we've seen some state-level polls that show that in Florida, Georgia. There's a new one out of Texas where DeSantis has now taken the lead. Look, we are so far removed that those numbers don't really matter that much because a lot can and will change. But to your point, there is a clear, large contingent of Republican voters, two-time Trump supporters, who are looking at what happened on Tuesday, looking at the road ahead, and are at least very much open to something new and different. I think that's undeniable. Yeah, I I mean, I I absolutely, I'm seeing the same trends as you are. Um, I also, I don't think it's bad for the Republican Party to have a serious primary where our ideas are hashed out. I think part of what happened in this election is that people tried to go too personality heavy. Um, A lot of the candidates were telling their life stories a little too much. Um, And I, I don't think that the ideas came across here, like what the candidates were running on. I mean, how much we heard, for example, about Dr. Oz, how much did we hear about what he was going to do. And I I think that the personality-driven elections really are not going to be good for us going forward. You're going to have the occasional 2016, but then you're also going to have the occasional 2020. And it's it's not a positive way to move forward. So I'd love to see a primary where we hash out what we stand for and what the ideas going forward should be. And I think Mm -hmm. it would make whoever the candidate is stronger to come out of it, um, having battled that and you know, I think personality should take a back seat for now. And, you know, Carol, because people ask me about DeSantis all the time. I did an event with conservatives and Republicans here in the U.K. yesterday, and 
everyone wanted to talk about DeSantis. And what I've said, and I've actually said this to DeSantis's team as well, which is you know, if he's thinking about running for president, and I think he's thinking about it, I don't know if he's going to do it, but if he runs, a couple things to consider are picking your time, picking your moment, understanding your moment. And I think there would be a risk potentially to waiting 2024 or waiting to 2028 instead of 2024 because he's extremely relevant right now and just did what he did in Florida, which got a lot of attention for good reason. But there's also this notion that even if you are this, you know, tough governor that the base loves and you you beat the left in your state and did some extraordinary things, you know, on paper, you might be a really strong even potential front runner for the next presidential election. But look how that worked out in 2016 for Scott Walker in Wisconsin, right? Walker, I think, had a lot of people like me very open to him as the nominee in 2016. You saw his record of success in Wisconsin, what he was able to do. Then he became a presidential candidate and just didn't get the job done. He wasn't good on the national stage in this conversation. For that full conversation, you can log on to GuyBensonShow.com and check it out there. The podcast is free on demand every day. The entire show, start to finish, no charge. When we come back, the home stretch, while I am here in London broadcasting these couple of shows here, it has been a bit of a bumpy ride. I'll explain when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for listening. We're broadcasting from the Fox News Bureau in London, England. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast free of charge on demand every day. So I told you last week that I was coming over here for a couple of events. The first event was yesterday, last evening here local time, Sunday. The next one is on Wednesday. And so in order to give myself a little bit of a buffer to get across the pond, get some rest, try to get over some of the jet lag and arrive in somewhat decent shape for the event on Sunday. I had booked a flight late Friday night. It was the red eye. So leaving around 10 p.m. Eastern from D.C., the goal is to sleep on the plane. You land. It's the morning here. And then I would have kind of a day of recovery on Saturday ahead of the speaking engagement on Sunday. So I got to the airport in plenty of time, had a bite to eat, had a drink or two, getting ready to board. Everything was on time, no problem. We boarded the plane. I settled into my seat. They came around and took our dinner orders because they will offer you a quick service at the beginning of the flight so you can sleep and or you can at least try to sleep. And everything was good. I was watching the Stanley Tucci series on Italy where he just eats his way through Italy. It's just very charming and delightful. And all was good and right with the world until our departure time came and went, which is never a great sign. You're not really hearing much of anything. Then I saw a maintenance guy walking through. It's like, okay, what's going on? They announced that there was some sort of an issue that they were trying to resolve, and then they would get us going. So we waited for a while longer, and then they said, okay, it's been resolved. Problem fixed. We have to do the paperwork, and then we'll go. Great. Then they came back on the intercom, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, just kidding. The fix had not stuck, apparently. And then the mechanical issue was turning into, for some reason, an FAA issue. And so stand by. We stood by a little bit longer. And then they said, 
well, this is not going to be addressed adequately this evening, and so we're going to need you to get off the plane. We're going to try to get you onto a different aircraft. And my suspicion is that was a lie. They knew that they weren't going to have a plane just to put a bunch of people onto another plane and fly across an ocean, but they wanted us to, in an orderly way, get off the plane. So we all got our stuff, got up. We'd been sitting there for probably an hour or two at that point. It's one o'clock in the morning almost. And we get into the little waiting area, like we're waiting to board, except we're waiting for further guidance. We wait probably 20 or 30 more minutes, and then they say, the flight's canceled. Sorry. Go down to gate whatever, and there's customer service, and we'll figure it out from there. So there's a stampede to go get help. I called the helpline from the airline and was able to get booked on a flight the next night. There were no morning flights or afternoon flights. It was the following evening or the following late night, and as a matter of fact, they had to put me on another airline. It wasn't even an associated airline, so not to get too nerdy here, but I'm a weird airline geek. United is part of the Star Alliance, and so typically they partner with their alliance friends. That's where you can get code shares and that kind of thing. But occasionally, extenuating circumstances, if they owe you something because it was their fault, it wasn't a weather thing, they can then just book you on other airlines, even if it's out of network to use kind of a term that somewhat applies here. So they did. They put me on British Airways, which is an American Airlines partner the next night. And fortunately, that flight was right on time. So 24 hours delayed, I was able to fly across, get a little tiny bit of sleep, and then arrive here on Sunday. I get to London. I check into the hotel, but the room isn't quite ready because it's roughly midday at that point. And so I kind of nodded off in the lobby waiting. They woke me up. I think I'd been out for maybe 45 minutes. They said, your room's ready. Great. So I really didn't have very much time before this event. So I got into the room. I showered and changed. That's basically all I had time to do. And then walked over to the place that I was speaking, which happened to be a 15-minute walk. It was actually lovely. It was Remembrance Sunday here in the UK where they honor their war dead. And many people wear the little poppy flower pin, the red pin, in honor of the fallen. And there were a bunch of events, so I was able to walk past some of those memorials and some of the gatherings, which was moving. I mean, the Brits have fought alongside the U.S. in so many wars on behalf of civilization and freedom so many times. And there are cousins over here, so it was it was moving and poignant. And I walked right past Big Ben, and they were projecting poppies on the side of Big Ben and walked past the Houses of Parliament in Westminster, and I arrived at this place, and I was just so tired. But the adrenaline kicked in. The event went very well. My talk about the elections, I think, went pretty well. Believe it or not, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa was there. (laughs) She attended. I didn't know until I got there. They said, oh, Ernst is in town, and she found out about the event, and she asked if she could come, and we said, of course. So that was very fun. A regular guest on the program, the senator from Iowa, She was there, and we were able to catch up a little bit and talk about election stuff and post-election stuff, so we have to get her back here on the show soon. So the event went well, had a quick bite of dinner afterwards, went back to the hotel, and my game plan when it comes to trying to avoid the jet lag mess is to stay up 
late enough on the first night over here to then go to bed at a normal sort of late bedtime and then sleep hopefully through the night, wake up in the morning and kind of reset. That was the goal. And it seemed to be working rather well. I stayed up, I watched a few YouTube videos and was nodding off, forced myself to stay up a little bit longer, finally turned off the light probably right at midnight. And I was so exhausted that I fell asleep almost immediately, and I slept like a rock for a little over three hours. And then the fire alarm went off at the hotel. And when I tell you this was very loud, well, I'll I'll confirm that it works, right? It woke me up and got me very motivated to leave the building. So I guess that's a plus if there's a fire that's endangering your life, you want to get out. Unfortunately, there did not appear to be any fire endangering anyone's lives. It was, it seems, a false alarm, but we had to evacuate. So I was just like woken up from the middle of a deep, exhausted slumber on a different continent. And I was so disoriented. I was like, what is happening? Where am I? It was quite a scene in my room. And I did have my wits about me and the presence of mind to grab my wallet and my passport And I went out in my pajamas with like a jacket on and just stood out there. It wasn't too cold, thank goodness, with hundreds of guests just waiting. Fire department came. They cleared the building. They let us back in. Took me quite a while to fall back asleep because that was disruptive. I think it's fair to say. But I eventually got back to sleep, slept until maybe mid-morning, and now here we are. So we'll see how things go tonight. That was not ideal. It's not how I drew it up in terms of the flight or the extremely loud fire alarm at 3.30 in the morning, but it is what it is. And at least for now, right now, coming to you doing this show, I feel mostly coherent, kind of (laughs) rested-ish. So hopefully if I was like slurring any words or making any dumb points, let's just chalk it up to jet lag. Just be kind to me if you would. And then hopefully tomorrow it'll be a little bit easier. I still think with all of that being said, I had a better weekend experience than producer Christine, who has been, Christine, would you say, heavily under the weather for the last few days? Oh, yeah. I would I would definitely say that. But can I just ask, what? just following up on one thing you just said, uh, for now on going forward, if I slur my words or say dumb points, can we <laughs> blame it on jet lag? Well, It depends. Have you been on a flight internationally recently? Nope. Nope. No. We'll just call it jet lag. (laughs) Christine has some some jet lag. Yeah, she's she's at home on a Saturday night, and she's on her second bottle, and unfortunately she's now experiencing a bit of jet lag. That's what I'm going to call it for now. Okay, that's the new euphemism. (laughs) There was no jet lag this weekend. Um, Megan, of course you know when kids are in school, they bring home germs and sicknesses, and not necessarily COVID, but uh, Megan got hit with something, and uh, she politely and kindly passed that along to her mother. So, uh, no, I've not seen really the outside of anywhere for days and I've been watching a lot of Christmas movies with Miss Megan. 
And well, um, look, you you know what? I won't even say it. I'm going to let you have your Christmas movie moment because my position is clear, and you're just trying to convalesce. So I'll allow it. I hope that you guys feel a lot better very soon. You're a trooper for working from home even because I can hear it in your voice. You're not feeling great, but the show must go on. The show did go on from London, England tonight and again tomorrow. Thank you so much for tuning in. Back here, same time, same place. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.